Hey guys, quick disclaimer for this episode. Let It Spin is a specific type of episode I'll be doing occasionally, which is simply just me giving my initial thoughts on an entertainment news topic I feel the need to talk about immediately. I recorded it back in September of 2020, when Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list first dropped on their site. So this was an initial reaction to something that's now somewhat old news. As I've previously mentioned, my aim was to launch the podcast and site a lot sooner, but I personally think it's better late than never. With that being said, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Retrospective Perspective with Jeremy Ariel Diaz. I want to thank you for tuning in and checking out what I have to say on pop culture and art and its debt to itself. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit more off the cuff. Uh, going to be doing something a little bit less scripted, give you a little bit of my initial reaction, initial thoughts to something that uh, is very, very exciting to me. And something that I think requires some reflection and reflecting upon. I'm talking about Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Times list. And this is their revamped 2020 version. It's completely new. They had uh, their first version of the list came out in 2003. Then they updated it slightly in 2012 to include just a few albums to tweak it a little bit. And now they've completely obliterated their last list and are starting from scratch. And I feel like this is a very exciting time to be a music critic or music journalist. Just because for me, Rolling Stone is the music bible. I feel like this is uh, a strong line of demarcation in pop culture for me. At least they're making me feel like it is. Because it shows that music is changing. Music history is being looked at. Uh, from a new lens, from a new perspective, from a new standing point, and I want to join in on the conversation. As always, be sure to pull up the playlist of the songs I'll be discussing in this episode by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting theretrospectiveperspective.com. I think it took me about a year, a year and a half to listen to everything on the list. And once I was done, I was like, I want to do this again chronologically. (laughs) So I started um, from 500 and made my way all the way to number one. And I've just been in and out of the list, been studying it, been also considering what what could be added to the list. I've also been considering what 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 holds up as a timeless classic, what has made impact, what what do I perceive might have impact, lasting impact? So these I've I've these things that I've been uh, dwelling on and ruminating on for years. So when this list dropped last week, I had a field day, um, and I want to talk a little bit about my thoughts on certain placements. I'm gonna go through the list. Uh, uh, my, not gonna talk about each and every placement. Um, but I want to talk about my thoughts on this new iteration of the list um, and how I feel about it. So first, I'll say that um, Rolling Stone, I feel, did a great job with the list. You know, they made a great point that a lot of 
the artists of today, a lot of the artists making waves today and changing up the game and, you know, uh, having the biggest followings were in middle school or younger when the first list was released. And that's significant because, you know, when the first list in 2003, they basically sent out a poll of some sort, I believe, or the, or what they call it is a ballot to different music execs, to different artists, bands, um, music critics and journalists, industry people, and uh, kind of had them rank their top favorite albums or maybe the albums that are most influential to them is how I understand it. And from those ballots, from those polls, uh, they kind of compiled not just the albums that are probably most mentioned or most revered uh, by these industry people, by these uh, people in, in the music industry, but also they were able to, um, I'm assuming, rank them also according to um, the certain rankings on the individual ballots and how often they appear. This is how I understand how I understand it to work from what they've mentioned about uh, uh, the contribution, the contributors and the contributions to uh, this new list. And think about it, you know, in 2003, they probably sent this this poll, these ballots to people who probably aren't even alive today. For the most part, you know, we had a, a lot of rock legends who were still alive and kicking at the at the start of this century, who aren't with us today, you know, and, and now that their opinion isn't valid, just because they're not with us anymore, um, that they're they're suddenly they're they're what influenced them no longer matters. But something like that is important to consider when we think about this is almost about twenty years later, and the music industry, the music scene is vastly different, and our artists of today are influenced and were influenced by probably very different people and bands. Hence why starting from scratch, starting from the ground up is extremely important. And Rolling Stone also recognizes in this new list that probably there was some bias with who whose opinion was uh, valued a bit more. There was an extreme shortage of first and foremost women on the original lists. And the number of white artists, they call it in, in, in Rolling Stone's statement, they called it rock-centric, quote-unquote. The number of rock-centric albums, um, you know, was probably a bit excessive. But that's another way to say white. Um, they've made a great point to recognize that where we are in music today, rock music has taken the backseat. Pop music has evolved. Takes a lot from hip-hop. Hip-hop is vastly different today. It's the leading genre. All other genres are currently influenced by it because that's how you get a radio hit today. And Rolling Stone recognizes that this is that we are in the future. Because of this point uh, in music history that we're at, it's important to look back and review the history with these new lens. Continuing to view the history from 2003 when rock was still prom as prominent as it was, and the pop scene was vastly different. It's not very true to the evolution of music 20 years later. So I understand the revamping. So far, the ranking is much better uh, than what it was before. There are, you know, not too many albums that I don't recognize on here. 
very few artists that I'm not familiar with, probably just a handful. And I think that's very telling because I'm a millennial and it makes sense that I'm going to view this list in the way that I do. With that being said, uh, let's take a look at some of the placements. I'm currently just giving a first impressions, initial look at the list, um, not having heard every single album on this new list. Um, at 447, we have Bad Bunny's Por Siempre. And I was kind of shocked to see this on the list. Not, not only because it's so recent, it came out at the very end of 2018. Um, and I, he I heard it for the first time in 2019. I just also didn't think Rolling Stone would give urban Latin pop the credit that it's due. Um, but you know, rightly so, it, it deserves this uh, recognition. I think it's too soon to tell, but I, if I were going to put my chips one way or the other, I could totally see this being a classic, especially an enduring classic in uh, the Hispanic Latino community. Then we get to a few spots later, Mariah Carey's The Emancipation of Mimi. Now, this was another one where I squealed when I saw it listed here. Uh, because the album is great, but also I'm happy Mariah was, was recognized on this list because she wasn't present on the last uh, two iterations of the list and she also was not is not present on their um on rolling stones 500 greatest songs of all time i don't even think mariah's on she's not even on any of their like decades best lists literally none of them 2010s 2000s 90s she's missing and i feel like that's a real travesty and an oversight or it has been until now but my pick for Mariah Carey album, if I were to pick one to be on an all times list, I would have picked Butterfly just because I think it's it's an album I return to so often in life. Every year I go through a it's time to listen to the Butterfly album for about a month phase. Like literally all I listen to is the Butterfly album back to back over and over. You know, it's hip hop soul meets a little contemporary meets R&B. She just perfected it so well. Um, it's such a personal album of hers. Not that Emancipation isn't, but Butterfly is such a solid album. It has hit after hit, whereas I feel like Emancipation of Mimi has maybe um, weak songs. I'm not saying that they're duds, but weaker than the other tracks on there. It's not, it's not bad. It's just a very slight blemish. But I just feel like Butterfly is, you know, just back-to-back gems honestly but if i were going to choose a second album of hers to be on here the emancipation of mimi would be it now maybe they chose it to be on here for its influence you know because i'm pretty sure the B mariah's butterfly album not that it wasn't influential because it was amazing but it was not necessarily a seminal album it did not spark um a new fad or a new trend in music with the Butterfly album, she sort of just perfected what was already out there and what, like, you know, women like TLC, Mary J. Blige, um, and Aaliyah, you know, they had already kind of, they had already began to trailblaze in the genre of hip-hop soul. So, you know, Mariah basically just perfected, made her her own, but it wasn't necessarily influential in that kind of way, in the grander scheme of things. And I wonder if... The Emancipation of Mimi is seen to be a bit more of an influential album for R&B music of the time. And I know that the album, I would even categorize it less as R&B 
of the 2000s and more of a soul album. You know, it's a lot of the songs have a very traditional sound, which I guess was unique for its time. Mariah really showed that ballads uh, could still be done in a fresh, um, modern way that can still appeal to young people and doesn't have to be necessarily coined as adult contemporary because her ballads on her 90s albums, most of her ballads are adult contemporary. Like even on Butterfly, you'll have, you know, effulgent R&B songs like Honey and The Roof and Breakdown, which are freaking genius songs. The less mid-tempo, more more um, straightforward ballads on the Butterfly album, legit adult contemporary, like a Celine Dion kind of song, you know, um, like Butterfly itself. And My Awe is also a bit schmaltzy, even though it's amazing. Um, and a lot of the battles on her other albums are that way, but I feel like the Emancipation of Mimi also kind of showed that ballads could be fresh and young, um, with We Belong Together and Don't Forget About Us and other album, album cuts. So, you know, I guess Mariah did do something special here in the mid 2000s with this album. Um, but I, but personally, I do love Butterfly a little bit more. Now, this is a funny story because, um... Okay, at 361, we have My Chemical Romance's The Black Parade, right? I've been with my partner for about two years. He's a big My Chemical Romance fan, probably the biggest. He literally spent three to four hundred, in between three and four hundred dollars to see them live this year. Didn't get to see them because the concert was postponed uh, due to, um, uh, you know, the virus. But, you know, that's how big a how, how big a fan he is, that he's still going to wait for next year with this $400 ticket that he can't do anything with at the moment for My Chemical Romance. And he's been a fan of theirs since they, their heyday. And I've always made fun of him <laughs> because, you know, I mean, he had the audacity to say that they're better than Nirvana. So there's that. But then I also just made fun of him because I always saw it as like emo music, like fake punk or whatever you know so i kind of just make fun of him for that and i i I, in all honesty i never um i i'm not very familiar with their music i maybe know one or two songs because of the its popularity during its time but i've never really given them a chance sat down listen to an album listen to a song and see how it makes me feel i kind of just stereotype them to be a part of a certain group but um you know, when I saw this album on here, I had to give it to him. I was like, you know what? Um, you were right. I was wrong. This band apparently is critically acclaimed. They're considered one of the best. Their music is considered among the best. Now it's time for me to um, sit over there, put the album on blast, put my foot in my mouth. So I have not listened to The Black Parade yet, but, you know... Uh, I wanted to own up to that and I will be giving my chemical romance an honest try. And maybe, um, maybe if I do an an update on what I think of all these albums that I hadn't heard yet, you know, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts, but, uh, now I have a much more open mind. It sucks. It sucks that critics had to tell me you should have an open mind for this because that's literally the influence of media, um, (laughs) at its finest. But, you know, sometimes it takes certain things, certain authority figures, you know, like Rolling Stone magazine to kind of uh, pull you down from your high horse. So we'll see, you know, we'll we'll see how I feel about it. But I am going to go in with an open mind and I'm going in hoping and wanting to like it. So that's already a great start. 
Okay, and then at 342, we have The Beatles' Let It Be. And this is not a new addition. This album has appeared on all three of the lists, so it's not surprising to see it. But I just wanted to point it out because I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see it. Because on the first list in 2003, it was like number 96, 98. It was something like that. It was like in the, in the top 100 of the list, right? And I love Let It Be, the album. I know it's controversial because it's not, it's not really seen as the Beatles' last album because they actually worked on it first in Abbey Road. It was created like disparately, like... Not only was it created under tension, but then like it was finalized with all four of them just separate. And like, I think Phil Spector put the finishing touches and it wasn't even their final vision. They didn't really like it. Maybe there was like a few of them that liked it. A few of them didn't. Don't remember who exactly. You know, so it's very it's a very controversial album for music lovers and Beatles lovers. Um, but Let It Be is one of my favorite Beatles albums. I think my top five in no particular order right now, Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, The White Album, um, Revo- uh, not Revolver, I like Rubber Soul a little bit better than Revolver, and then Let It Be, and then Revolver's like maybe number six, <laughs> Like, and I know that's controversial in and of itself, um, but I just really, really like Let It Be. It's another album that I revisit a lot. I think, in all honesty, I'm I'm, I'm not just saying this. I think I revisit Let It Be, the album, more than I revisit any of the other Beatles albums. Because usually, the way I listen to the Beatles music, for the most part, it's a little ritualistic. Like, uh, the way I listen to their music once a year, I'll go through their whole discography in chronological order. So, like, I'll start with Please Please Me, and I'll listen to that album as much as I want to. Then I go on to the next album uh, with the Beatles or meet the Beatles. Um, then I go into the next and the next. And that's usually how I listen to their music. I don't know why I prefer to do it in order in that way. And I rarely ever just listen to a Beatles song off the cuff. I usually listen to their whole like body of work as a whole. I do that with a lot of things. Not sure why. You know, as opposed to one album being its own body of work, I kind of see their entire catalog as one whole, one whole monolith. Let It Be is the one album that I can listen to off the cuff. Maybe because it's their quote-unquote last album. Maybe. I don't know what it is psychologically. But like, Let It Be is the one album I come back to a lot. It's another one that just makes me feel certain things. Like, Even though Abbey Road feels a lot more final, Let It Be feels transcendent. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, Abbey Road is their final album. It's the final album they worked on. It's the final album that they released together. It was their vision. They put their stamp of approval on it. It's the final Beatles album, right, for the most part. And then Let It Be feels transcendent because it's like, it's their last album, but it's not. It's like, it's the end, but it's not. So it just kind of feels in a weird way otherworldly, even though it's not. it doesn't have any cosmic themes or, or sounds. But it feels a little otherworldly to me for that reason, that it's a little bit transcendent in the Beatles catalog. So that that's just something I thought I'd share. At 233, we have one of my favorite albums of all time. I know we've said that a couple of times, but Little Earthquakes is really one of my favorite albums. It's an album I revisit again yearly around the clock. There always comes a time of, of year, time of season when I revisit this album and listen to it a lot, as well as the B-sides. Um... 
and I, I honestly wasn't expecting to see it on here just because I know that I know that Little Earthquakes was um, acclaimed upon release. And then I know Under the Pink was acclaimed. And then and then I know Tori had some hits and misses with Rolling Stone, at least in terms of how they reviewed her albums and, and how they regarded her music. I think um, and she wasn't really given credit for kind of taking that that um that uh eccentric female singer songwriter um persona and making it applicable to the alternative era of the 90s and creating her own legacy at that and i don't think she was ever really given credit for that um but i know that a lot of the times in her later work i know her lyrics were criticized a lot by rolling stone for being too ambiguous or vague or hard to understand or trying too hard whatever it was that they accused Tori Amos's lyrics of doing which is a fair argument um, because she does write rather her the the lyrics to her songs are extremely cryptic and probably a lot of the times something probably only Tori would understand or and she could only make sense of but I think little earthquakes um kind of catches her just before she went down that rabbit hole of you know of songwriting in that way and i think this is probably her most straightforward songwriting her her most straightforward lyric writing um it's her most accessible album because you know i'd say every single one of her albums are solid statements they are complete and finished works but i think little earthquakes takes it a step beyond that uh you know the themes that she touches on there are extremely um relatable they're extremely real they really cut deep you know and and and, you know and i don't say that frivolously you know the songs on that album are extremely i think they're some of the most stark and vulnerable songwriting uh, that i've ever heard so i'm 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 glad that little earthquakes is being given this recognition such a great placement too. 233 you know i really did not expect to see this album on here and actually the first time i looked through the list really quickly i just didn't register it it wasn't until the very next day i was like you know what let me take a look at the list a second time that i saw it it didn't happen with any other album but it happened with this one i just really was not expecting to see it but uh, it made me and other people that i know who are fans of tori amos it made us really happy to see it on here at 222, we have Madonna's Ray of Light. Now, when I was scrolling through the list the first time, I got really nervous because I think on the on the first two iterations of the list, this album was like 300 and something, 360 something, 340 something, you know, giving you a ballpark number. So when I passed by there and I kept going and kept going and kept going and I didn't see it, I was like, oh my gosh, they removed Ray of Light. I know it happened with the Madonna album the first time they updated the list. Madonna had four albums on the original list. She had uh, her music album from 2000. She had Ray of Light from 1998. She had her um, first greatest hits album, The Immaculate Collection from 1990. Uh, And then she had Like a Prayer uh, from the year before. She had those four albums. And I think she was the female artist with the most albums on the list originally. And then... Uh, on the update, they removed the music album. She had three, and I think she was still the f- the female artist with the most albums on the list. But I was like, man, they, they removed music, which I think is one of my favorite albums ever. 
So when I scrolled through 360 whatever and didn't see Ray of Light, I was like, damn it. They did it to her again. They took one of her albums out of here and probably, you know, one of her better albums. Um, but then I saw that it, it actually just jumped about 150 placements on the list and it, it made me even happier. And I think most critics would say that um, this album is the reason that EDM uh, became mainstream. Um, you know, and the fact that uh, in this day and age, pop music is essentially synonymous with electronic dance music. Uh, and it has been for the last 10 years. On this side of history, it's giving its flowers to the source of you know, the electronic dance music that is so prominent in clubs and playlists today. Yeah, got, got to give props where props are due. At 202, we have Bjork's Homogenic. Um, you know, there's someone I know that uh, wouldn't give the original list the time of day because there was only one Bjork album on there. Um, having a second one on there, you know, they they appreciated it, you know, I but Vesper, Bjork's Vespertine wasn't on there, so they're still, they still have some reservations. But adding Homogenic um, definitely um, was a smart move. You know, um, it's electronic music, but she did some stuff that I don't think anyone's ever done since or before. Now, please do not quote me on this, um, but I could have sworn I once saw an interview where Bjork describes how she acquired sounds from Icelandic nature, uh, such as volcanoes erupting and earthquakes and other uh, quirky sound effects like glass breaking. I could have sworn um, I had an image of Bjork in nature recording these sounds uh, herself, but I, I don't know how plausible that is. So don't quote me on that. But I know for sure um, these these sound effects are still in there, whether they're simulated or legit. And she acquired them elsewhere. You know, it's something it, she created music out of these sounds, out of these sound effects, and it's like layered within the tracks, but like you would never know listening to it. So, this album is one of a kind. Now, I'm coming across Portish Head's Dummy at 131, but that's after having passed through Nirvana's In Utero and PJ Harvey's Rid of Me, which were just a few spots before it. Now, these three albums were on the last iterations of the list, but they were not this high up. They were not in the top 150. Um, they were much, much further back. Now, when it comes to Rid of Me and In Utero, I think those albums have jumped um, less for their influence genre-wise, and I think more for their influence in vibe. You know, I think there's something to be said. I could be wrong, but I'm just, these are just my initial musings i think there's something to be said about being influential in spirit so obviously nirvana was extremely influential they changed the landscape of rock music they changed the landscape of mainstream music and the way rolling stone puts it uh is perfectly said an entire generation um became grunge you know became alternative right and obviously pj harvey did the same thing um and she did it with her feminist take um that's putting it lazily so forgive me but you know obviously when, when we're here today in 2020 rock music and especially alternative grunge music um is not necessarily thriving so i you know it, it was making me wonder why are these two albums why do these two albums jump up so high being that they weren't the seminal albums of their genre like 
obviously Nirvana's Nevermind is going to be is now in the top 10 um, before it was like in the top 20 in the last lists. Um, and now it's in the top 10, rightly so, because it was the seminal album for that movement that I was talking about. But I think um, it's interesting to ponder about uh, albums like In Utero and uh, Rid of Me, which were actually produced by the same guy. They're, it's just interesting because they're not seminal albums, but I'm wondering if it's something about the spirit of those albums that exists in our, our alternative pop artists of today or of our or of our indie rock uh acts of today or are indie pop acts of today um and it made me think of that when i saw portish heads dummy um because i know that even though trip hop does not exist today the vibe of portish heads dummy um is absolutely felt in artists like lord and other alt pop artists so i think it's it's something interesting that rolling stone is paying more attention to with this list at least that's how i interpret it so I'm not going to dive too much into the top 100 albums because I'm pretty sure I've either spoken about it already or will speak about these albums uh, on future podcasts. I'll give my hot take on them in the Individual Decades podcast, so I won't beat a dead horse there. Um, but one thing I will say is that Moby's play is missing from this new list. It was on the original list and the update, and now it's deleted. And I think that's an absolute travesty. Before it was on, it was maybe number three hundred and something. Now it's gone. If it was up to me, it'd be in the top fifty. <laughs> um, uh, and I wouldn't have been mad if I saw it at number one. That's how much I love that album. Uh, so I'm kind of sad to see it gone. I believe it will make a comeback one day on the list just because just because the state of music now, I think, is heavily influenced by what Moby did in 1999 with Play, his Play album. And it's probably like uh, people aren't recognizing what's right in front of their face, which is his influence. <laughs> but probably as we move past this uh, prominence of electronic music uh, in the mainstream, maybe then we'll look back and appreciate what we should be appreciating in this moment. Um, but with that being said, I'm happy with this list. I'm thinking soon I'll do one of my own ballots. I'll, I'll fill out a ballot the same way that these industry people and musicians filled out theirs with their top 50 albums. Maybe I'll do a top 50, maybe I'll do a top 25 of my own favorite personal albums. I know I spoke a lot as if Rolling Stone handpicked the albums on this list and sorted them any which way they wanted but i should iterate that it it was based on a poll it was based on a democratic vote therefore i feel like this list is extremely important and valid and even if you don't agree with the opinions of the albums that are on there or not on there or the way that they're ranked um it's important to realize that this is a conglomerate this is you know representative of multiple voices um, averaged into one even though in reality it might not have so much importance because opinions are subjective and the way we love albums and the way we think about albums on an individual level is extremely subjective and objective to ourselves it's subjectively objective <laughs> but i feel like it's so important to have these conversations and discussions and it's a lot of fun and with that i will leave you thanks for listening Make sure to follow The Retrospective Perspective on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for all updates regarding new episodes and to join in on the conversation. 